The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Hello and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. The Shed, a vast new cultural centre in New York, has received mixed reviews since opening earlier this month. You can hear what our New York contemporary art correspondent Linda Yablonski makes of it later in the podcast. But first this week, Edvard Munch. The British Museum in London has just unveiled, to ecstatic reviews, the exhibition Love and Angst. It focuses on Munch's printmaking and features more than 80 works, including 45 prints lent by the Munch Museum in Oslo. I went to the British Museum to talk to Julia Bartram, the exhibition's curator. Julia, before we get into the meat of the show, we're sitting in your office, which is below the prints and drawings room in the British Museum, the wonderful prints and drawings room. And there is a vague possibility that Munch may have visited the British Museum prints and drawings room, or is there not? Yes, it's very tantalising. He only visited London once for a few months in 1913, and we know that he stayed with a, a German chap called Hanfstangel, who was the relative of a publisher that Munch knew in Berlin, um, because we, it's quite clear that he m- must have been staying with him. Hanfstangel visits the study room here in the British Museum on three or four occasions in May 1913, and he says he comes with a group of visitors, but unfortunately Munch's name does not appear there. And I do feel that Munch himself would have probably signed the book himself in his own name if he had um, visited. So it's just a tantalising um, bit of evidence that we know he was interested in old master prints. He was, he was deeply interested in printmaking trends of the day of his own contemporaries. And we know also it's very likely indeed that he visited the V&A at this time. So uh, that was a big new museum and uh, just opened in uh, just before that. And he but, knew of the, the, the quality of this collection, didn't he? Because he actually gave prints to the British Museum. He did. In later life, he presented two prints in 1936 at a time when he had uh, works on display in the London Gallery in Bond Street. Um, an exhibition being organised probably by Rolf Stenison, his biographer, a later biographer who he knew well, who wrote a wonderful book about him called Close Up of a Genius. But I think those, the prints that came were ones that he'd made in the 1920s. So in a way, he was wanting to uh, um, illustrate, to exhibit his, his recent work to show that, yes, he was still a name that counted. Where did prints fit in with his body of work? Because uh, for some artists, it's sort of minor subsidiary of their work, but for Munch, it was much more important. No, it really wasn't. He was really excited about the techniques of printmaking when he first arrived in Berlin. You have to recall that his initial impressions of Berlin were very much coloured by a sensational exhibition of his work at the Art Union in Berlin in 1892, when he'd exhibited his very famous Sick Child, a painting that he'd struggled for one year to express that moment of grief felt as he watched his sister Sophie die. She had died several years before as a as a child. She was 15 and he was 13, but it was an event that he had never, ever forgotten. And he had determined on a course of action of presenting, the bearing his soul, really representing these emotions um, in his art. When he got to Berlin, the exhibition was closed within a week because very traditional uh, militaristic Kaiser's Germany simply could not understand it. However, the avant-garde certainly did, and there were younger artists who were enthusiastically asking for Monk and wanting to know what his work looked like. So he organised quite quickly for an art dealer to tour the show that had been there in Berlin. 
At the same time, he stayed on in the city, in the city and um, uh, then took up printing, printmaking, because he knew that there were very good printmakers in in the city. Um, he knew this from um, uh, prints that he had known by symbolist artist Max Klinger, who he knew knew back in Christiania, who had practiced um, his his printmaking trade in in Berlin. Um, they were printed by someone called Otto Felsing, who made beautiful intaglio prints. Soon after that, he must have met Lassley and Liebman, who specialised in lithography. But this was a complete revelation to him. Um, printmaking of this quality that, that simply did not exist in Christiania of his day. So Christiania uh, was the original name of Oslo until uh, um, 1925. Um, it was then renamed when uh, Norway acquired independence. It was uh, renamed Oslo, its original medieval name. So he starts playing around with these wonderful techniques of lithography and woodcut, lithography in particular initially, and takes to it very, very quickly. I think because, first and foremost, he's a very natural draftsman monk. He expresses... He was just always interested in finding other ways of expressing his wonderful um, emotional prints of, of substance. So he experimented with lithographic wash and chalk um, and discovered that you could achieve incredible depth and atmosphere and tone with black, with ranges of black. He then, when he moved to Paris a few years later, discovered there were incredible printmakers who specialised in colour, notably August Clot, who uh, made um, the principal Toulouse-Lautrec, you think of those wonderful um, mm. works by Toulouse-Lautrec, uh, Fouillard, Bonnard, who worked in the city. And that was when he really discovered the excitement of, of printing in colour, which was a further way of experimenting. Um, so you think of his sick child in lithography, the colour print, which we exhibit together in the exhibition, is actually infinite, infinitely more dense and um, redolent of that moment of grief, that actual moment when you watch someone slipping away in front of your eyes. And I, I do urge anyone who's actually watched this or watched a member of their family, they will relate to that print um, in a particular way. It's terrifically poignant, isn't it? It is very, very poignant. He somehow achieved um, a, a whiteness, a white whiteness, so that you can see that the, the face, the, that head of the child is just disappearing into the pillow. The show's called Love and Angst, and one of the sources of his angst was this, the fact that his mother died when he was five and his sister died when he was 13. Um, and he had a very particular... Um, view of disease and this this idea that tuberculosis was genetic and had this extraordinary idea that he wasn't going to have children because he didn't want to pass it on and all this kind of so so disease and and death was right at the heart of his thoughts about his own his his life absolutely they were fundamental you have to remember that this is an age when there were no antibiotics so it was a real fear tuberculosis was a huge problem in industrialized urbanized societies and he'd watched his his father was a military doctor he'd watched him try to cure very very sick patients and then resorting to prayer when all else failed and it was really the death of his sister though which impacted on him terribly and he then wanted to use that um as as uh, one of the most important that essential part of of his freeze of life he worked from quite early on on this series this cycle of human emotions so 
in effect, sickness part comes in at the end. Um, the earliest parts are notions of love, love, physical love and desire. Um, that then falls into love in torment, of which Madonna and vampire are critically the key elements. We then have anxiety and isolation, for which the screen was painted as a, a central focal point. Um, and then sickness and death, in which the, the death, that, that the sick child and his, his memory of his sister Sophie um, were key elements. But all of Monk's art is fundamentally about memory. All of his images relate to personal trauma, to moments that he's seen of relationships he's witnessed amongst his bohemian friends, relationships that come and go, fall apart. Tragedy in his own family. He had his sister too, was diagnosed with schizophrenia um, in the 1890s, and then she spent the rest of her life in an institution Monk paid for her care until her death in 1926. So that was always at the back of his mind. And because of the lack of, of real scientific insight into how these uh, diseases could be treated, he did feel that tuberculosis was somehow congenital. And then, of course, the effects of congenital syphilis, which were as more of a fear than anything else, but a very real problem. Ibsen memorably records these in his very powerful plays. And, and Ibsen was the generation older than Monk, but had a critical influence on him. Um, and indeed, the last section of the exhibition, we show his designs for stage sets for Ibsen's plays and his wonderful theatre programmes when he reminds us of, of figures turned away, figures lost in their own thoughts, looking out across the fjord and the mountains, waiting for... Uh, well, in the case of Pierre Ginter, waiting for the, uh, um, the, the his exile figure to return, which he doesn't. Um, before we get f- further into the figures turning away, the because we have uh, modernism tinted spectacles, it's very difficult to capture the idea of how radical it was to make expressionistic art about feelings and the soul in the late eighteen nineties and in the early part of the 20th century. And Munch himself responded very memorably to critics who were part of that whole resistance to the sick child and got that exhibition closed, didn't he? He did indeed. You have to recall at the time that the fashion was for glossy, highly finished interiors of social scenes or wonderful, huge, grand landscapes that were all... The detail was all there. You could see the rise of the glaciers and the fjords, and it was a sort of huge composition. And in the interiors, they were all very highly finished. You could see every single falling petal and um, you know, gloss of piece of fur. When people reacted rather crossly to the sick girl in particular, Monk responded rather testily that he did not want to spend his time painting twigs and fingernails. He didn't want to represent women sitting in interiors knitting. He wanted to represent something deeper and more profound. And I think that was the problem. Um, For 10 years he painted, he dabbled with French Impressionism, which was very fashionable, expressions of light. And now you have to remember, at this time, Paris was really the centre of the art world and what was going on in Paris was very important. Um, And in Berlin, where he had this big major um, exhibition, it was... They were very traditional. They wanted very conservative type of uh, um, images which fed into their bourgeois notion of society, but also a fairly militaristic one that was, uh, um, you know, Germany had a particular place in society that it had to live up to. And Monk simply wasn't interested in that. So when he 
these images came out, they must have caused a real shock. You have to remember, too, that his contemporaries, Gauguin and Van Gogh, were also struggling in the same way to sort of push against the boundaries of Western art, as they were known. They did it in different ways. Um, Van Gogh sadly got caught up within his own inner turmoil and died very young. Gauguin had to flee all the way to the South Seas to find his muses of inspiration, whereas Munch simply had to look at his own personal life, his own tragedy, and what life was like in Christiania um, to find his his creative and express his creative instinct. Now, as you say, there are a very large number of images in the exhibition which feature figures with their back turned to the viewer looking out into the landscape. What was he trying to do in those? Much of Monk's work is about evoking a mood. And you will notice that even when the figures turn towards you, often their faces are obscured slightly. Unless he's doing a straight portrait, he's really tuned into that um, use of symbolism. Symbolism in art was really redolent at the time. So people were used to reading something else, something other into works of this type. But the, but the important effect, I think, of the, the ones where figures are turned away, and this does happen a lot. He has one, a lot of contemplative figures on shorelines, the lonely ones in particular, um, the woman, the young woman on the beach, it's just a single figure turned out looking at sea. They have a, a dual-edged meaning to them. But they draw in the spectator because they, the spectator is trying to work out what was going on, but then you find that the spectator can also impose what they're thinking, that they're in that position of looking away in contemplation out to sea. It's often coasts um, it's towards the forest is one. It's the forested uh, emblems as well, because the, the forest went right down to the coast in Oscar Strand, which is his favourite resort, where he always went back every summer. But there is always that sense of with a forest, you're walking away into something, or are you on the edge? Are you part of it? There are all these questions which are raised, and I think that is a really good tool, which Monk must have been aware of, of a way of drawing his audience further, deeper into his images to project his own meaning, but also to to use it so that the, that the meaning could be interpreted in different ways. There is one image that features a figure with his back to the viewer, which ultimately led to what remains Munch's most famous work. Can you tell us about the work Despair and how it led to the scream? The genesis of Scream goes back to a very specific episode, which he recalls, in fact, when he's on holiday in Nice in south of France with an artist friend of his, a Norwegian, Christian Skredsvik. He recounts to Skredsvik an episode a few months before, which had taken place when he's out for a walk on the road above Oslo Fjord. He wasn't feeling well. He said, I was feeling sick. But he looked up and the most incredible blood-red skies appeared. The sunset was particularly vivid. And he said it was red, red as blood, coagulated like blood. Skredsvig, on his part, as he recalls this in his memoirs later, really got rather sick of Munch recounting this episode and said, <laughs> goodness sake, please go away and paint it so that you have a record and you can kind of get it off your chest. The, the result then initially is, is a painting called Despair, which shows Munch with his two friends that he's walking along uh, the, the road. The two friends are sauntering way further ahead, completely unconcerned. Monk himself, in this case, is represented as a figure in a coat and a bowler hat, turned, looking away down the fjord, as though the despair has just made him momentarily stop and pause and take breath. This then translates, within a year or so, to Scream itself, in which the 
memorable waving red skies and red red and blue clouds are sort of caught up in the whole composition as though the whole thing is resonating like a tuning fork and though as though the 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 moment of anxiety which he felt well up in him at this uh, this um, episode is affecting his whole body he relates it then in a um, interprets it again in a lithograph a year or so later when he starts using the technique in which the red and blue bands have translated into just black and white wavy bands um, which again swirl through the whole com- composition and he inscribes it here Geschrei, scream we're now in Berlin so he prints it with a, an inscription in German which I, I translate here and he says it underneath it says I felt the great scream pass through nature and he's got the figure is now memorably holding his hands over his ears as though the whole episode is making it the figure itself resonate clearly this relates to the moment of inner turmoil that Munch felt and related to Skredzig so accurately a few years before but the way it's been represented now it could be interpreted in different ways and people have talked about screaming in the valley perhaps it connected with the mental institution where his sister was uh, later incarcerated, which was nearby. But I think the, the, the more you look at it, the more you can actually see that Monk himself felt, des- felt desperate and perhaps it was because he wasn't feeling well, he had some sort of flu. But he is indeed talking about his own inner turmoil set off by those very red clouds uh, above the fjord in, in Christiania. Now, we talked a lot about angst. The The show is called Love and Angst. Obviously, there's the familial love uh, that is expressed in The Sick Child, for instance. But there's also this intriguing group that he was in in Christiania of bohemians, and that was a scene of free love, wasn't it? And it, how much did that impact on his art? That impacted very directly on his art. He was always of a nervous dis- disposition, and I think seeing all those relationships um, blossom and then dry up and the the inevitable jealousy which arouse, uh, arises from when you you know a woman is engaged with different men at the same time and indeed his own early experiences with Militao or married woman he had an affair with in his early 20s she cast him off and moved on elsewhere to to a different lover he never forgot that he recorded the, that relationship memorably on the um, uh, shoreline of Asgard Strand. It's called Summer Night, the Voice. And this figure is looking towards you with huge eyes, as though the whole um, purpose of the composition is to lure you in, is to entrap you. He had a, he had a real fear of women and, and uh, um, commitment to relationships, tied up with his um, fear of congenital syphilis. He didn't want to have children. But I think at the end of the day, he was simply wedded to his art and his fear of women... Um, which is often represented throughout this show in red hair. They often tend to be red-headed. Uh, Vampire has got red hair. Uh, Tula Larsen uh, was also red-headed. Red symbolised desire and sin. And I think this was used, these tangled threads of hair, to symbolise his um, fear of entanglement. And in- he felt it was an ensnarement um, from women. So that really did feed into his angst. The episode with Tula Larsen uh, led to a shooting incident. Um, he, the the affair ended rather badly. There was we don't know exactly what happened, but a gun went off. It was in a hotel room, so nobody has been around to really uh, uh, clarify exactly what happened. 
the gun went off and a bullet lodged in, in Monk's finger and that's recorded in an X-ray which we've got um, in the exhibition. This, um, soon after that, he had a breakdown, well, maybe four or five years, um, he had a breakdown in 1908. And I think it was partly brought on by alcoholism, partly it brought on brought on by really not wishing to be pinned down and trapped in a different way. So he would always move on and move away. After his breakdown, he returned to Norway and his style of his art changed dramatically. He focused much more on landscapes, on social scenes of figures within landscapes of figures along the coast, um, fishermen, of uh, swimmers, a very, very different style of art. And I think it was as though he confronted those anxieties and fears within himself. He realised when he had that breakdown that he'd got to change his lifestyle, simply couldn't carry on like that. And he did give up alcohol after his um, breakdown. So it was as though he, he, I think this is a sort of lesson that one can learn today, really, just by, by looking at how he approached his life. He always said in his early writings he was going to die young. In fact, he didn't. He died when he was nearly 80. He was a grand old man. He was much fated by also society, although he was fairly contemptuous and grumpy towards the end of his life. He was well known and he was moderately successful. Well, that didn't happen to either Gauguin or Van Gogh, did it? So he faced up to his fears and anxieties and, and got through them in, in a way, actually, which is admirable if you, if you look at what happened to him, the trauma that he felt himself. Now, the amazing thing about Munch is that his resonance continues today in all sorts of ways. There's an artist in the Venice Biennale coming up has, who has two sequences of paintings based on the freeze of life. Tracy Emin has talked at length about the importance of Munch. In fact, she said that he's the most important artist to her. What did you think it is? I mean, we've just been at the members' view, for instance, and it's a packed room upstairs. What do you think it is that resonates so much in the 21st century about Munch's work? I think it's that particular choice he made early on, inspired by the Bohemians and those ideas of free love, I have to say, because it was that early period, Hans Jaeger, who wrote that book that really inspired him. It was his decision to focus on representing emotion, those fundamental human emotions, which you have to say at the end of the day, he really did achieve. He struggled with it. Um, and he, his, uh, some of his work is, is much less, less successful than others. But in the end, the very powerful images really do work, whether the figures are turned away, whether there are episodes of death and illness which draw you in, whether they are lively interpretations used for um, uh, theatre and entertainment. He was an incredibly good portraitist. You have to, to remember, he does a wonderful portrait of Ava Modocci. But he uses... Those memorable figures in life, women in certain position, the older woman turned away in resignation, the young woman looking out to sea, the couple lost in contemplative thoughts of their own, um, standing on the edge of the shore, and most memorably of all, the couple on the edge of the woods, um, drawing into uh, the the dense blue-green of the forest. And he achieved that through his incredible interest and um, in, in different techniques. Towards the Forest is a memorable woodcut done um, in the jigsaw technique, which he, he nobody ever took this up, but he did inspire um, many people with his, his woodcut techniques. 
he took all the blocks out of um, the pieces out of a block. He saw them all up, inked them separately and then fitted them together, which gave him an infinite array of different colours and combinations. Um, in one fell swoop, he could take one impression, then he could remove the pieces and ink them again different colours. Towards the forest shows this par excellence. There are three prints here, all made from the same two blocks, all inked in different colours and printed in different sequences so that you get this incredible effect of of a difference in mood. And they do feel really different in mood. And I think everyone can relate to that. There's something about his work which draws you in and which makes you contemplate. He, The idea of a freeze of life, the serial sequence of how things fit in, I think actually fits more in with the tradition of material that he, he came from, um, uh, prints were issued in series and in sequences. Um, so it was music. Think of Wagner's Ring Cycle. Um, mm. That was popular before. Um, it, it, it makes that the breadth and the scale of that enterprise is also something that can re- relate to. You know, these images aren't just one-off. They're part of a much bigger pattern. And I think artists today can can really equate themselves with that. They're not you're not just making odd pieces, you're making something which fits into a much greater whole. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you very much. Edvard Munch, Love and Angst is at the British Museum until the 21st of July. We'll be back and on our way to the shed after this. When the American glass artist William Morris started driving trucks for the Pilchuck Glass School in Washington State, he could not have imagined that years later he would be running his own glass studio with his work on display at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. His reputation for revolutionising the art form is perfectly captured in Medicine Jar Cricket, which is being offered at Bonham's Modern Design and Art Sale in Los Angeles on the 24th of April. As Bonham's Director of Modern Design in LA, Jason Stein, explained, quote... The piece reflects that the artist's greatest inspirations come from ancient civilizations such as Egyptian, Asian and Native American and the relationship between human and animal. To find out more, visit bonhams.com. Welcome back. Now, one of the most significant new additions to New York's cultural landscape in recent years has opened its doors on the west side of Manhattan. The Shed aims to be the city's most flexible cultural institution, both in commissioning and presenting work in the performing arts, the visual arts and a range of pop culture, and in that the building, designed by the art world's current favourite architects, Diller, Scafidio and Renfro, can actually move along rails. Linda Yablonski, a contemporary art correspondent for the art newspaper, joined Nancy Kenny, our senior editor in New York, after sampling some of the opening events. Linda... The shed is part of the massive Hudson Yards development, which some critics have labeled a mall for the mega wealthy. Uh, Do you think the shed is of a piece with that or that it distinguishes itself as a more welcoming place? Well, it's the one element of Hudson Yards, which is not just a retail mall, but a residential and commercial development. Exceedingly banal in every way. So the shed is the one non-commercial element and although humongous in terms of its interior spaces, it's a somewhat smaller scale than the mega towers around it. It's eight stories with a, a retractable shell, which actually makes it smaller 
while exposing it to the outdoor space. But only four um, floors are accessible to the public. The even-numbered floors, there aren't even, there's no way to get to the other floors. I don't know what's in there, the engineering of the building, I guess. So you go from one to two to four to six to eight. So is it more amenable than Hudson Yards? Well, there's no getting away from its environment. Once you're inside, in the extended building, which it is right now, you have absolutely no awareness of the outside world except in the lobby off of the 30th Street entrance. There's another entrance from the plaza, so-called plaza, which is dominated by the Thomas Heatherick, I hesitate to call it a sculpture, metalwork, which is all you see when you go out. I mean, you see the Neiman Marcus sign and you see some buildings, but it really takes, it kind of soaks up all the air and visual interests out on that side of the shed. Inside, you're in a different world. The lobby, I have to say, is the smallest space in it. Or it's not really the smallest space, but it has low ceilings and they're kind of treated acoustically, and it feels somehow more intimate than a lot of the other spaces. It's weird that it has escalators, but there's only one way to access, there's only one way to access the escalators in the upper floors, which is where the action is. And that seems a little strange to me in terms of circulation. So what you see at the top of the first escalator off the lobby uh, is a big hallway with more escalators. And uh, on one end is the McCourt, which is this enormous hall. You mentioned that it was designed by Dealers Graffitio and Renfro to be a flexible building in every sense. Not only does it move back and forth on its tracks, uh, uh, extending and retracting, it also, uh, every space within it is kind of ready for anything, which is both good and bad, particularly in the spaces dedicated to the exhibition of visual art, very problematic so far, maybe not in the future. Um, the McCourt is where the opening event was, which was Soundtrack for America, a program put together by the artist and filmmaker Steve McQueen with a tremendous and impressive assist from Quincy Jones and a kind of board of advisors, more academic and cultural advisors. Uh, the Soundtrack of America is a kind of over five-night concert overview of African-American music. Uh, of every, every style and genre, and that music's influence on the music we have today. So in a way, it was a kind of revivalist concert because it, uh, the performers kind of did cover songs in reference to their inspirations, and then they also performed their own. There were about a thousand people on the floor in front of the stage, which is also kind of modular and flexible and is temporary. 
uh, is and will be there for the Bjork concert, which is coming up in May, and then will be taken away, and the building will be closed. That that not the building, but that part of it will come into will cover the permanent building to open itself to the plaza for outdoor dance and, and music performances. I guess that means that more people than the 2,000 standing that the interior space is supposed to hold can come, but it also exposes them to the banality of the surrounding structures in the plaza, which I don't think was planned when the shed was originally designed for it to be so crowded outside by unharmonious elements. However, I can only talk about what I saw, which was the building extended and this enormous hall with 150 feet foot high ceilings, because that's how high it needs to be to cover the other building when it contracts. So the concert started with a lot of joy uh, and uh, rhythm from in keeping with the scale of Hudson Yards, not one, but three marching bands. Um, and the audience uh, was cheering and delighted, and I would say 90% white people, which surprised me a little bit because of the nature of the, uh, the subject matter of the concert and the performers involved. If uh, the Hudson Yards, or the Shed, that is, is going to be a destination for the entire city, it has to connect with every population in the city, not just rich white people. It's trying to be, in, in keeping with its physical flexibility, something for everyone, but what happens when you try to please everyone is that you end up affecting no one uh, or very few. Right now it seems like a tourist destination, I mean Hudson Yards in particular. I, when I was there on Saturday afternoon, the plaza outside the shed was filled with shoppers uh, or people pouring out of the seven-line subway, which ends at that point. And they, nobody had shopping bags. They were just looking. They were looking at the mall. They were looking at the shed. There were lots of people going in and out of the shed to see the building, which they were free to explore, um, although you needed a ticket to get into the exhibitions. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, it's, it's, a, it's some kind of destination, but the city is not, it doesn't have to absorb this complex. The shed really has to reach out in order to bring people there. So it's got a kind of heavy burden to begin with. Alex Poots, who's the artistic director, can probably handle it. He, he created the Manchester Festival in, in England and, uh, uh, and also was uh, recent, more recently the director of the Park Avenue Armory, which I would say is the shed's direct competition but already established, and it's in the middle of town, so very easy for everybody to reach. There's also an ambitious collaboration between the painter Gerhard Richter, the composer Alvar Pear, and the composer Steve Reich. Um, can you describe it for us at all? I was embarrassed for Gerhard Richter and surprised by this exhibition. 
Let me say first, there are, there are two galleries devoted to visual art. Uh, the gallery where the space where the Richter-Reich part, so-called collaboration, is taking place is essentially one gigantic room, I would say as large as, if not larger than the top floor of the Museum of Modern Art. It's huge and it has very high ceilings. Uh, it has temporary walls for this exhibition, but not many. It has one wall dividing the space in half. When you walk into the exhibition, and I guess they limit the number of people in the gallery, at least for this show, what you see is strips, vertical strips of wallpaper taken from a Richter painting and on on the, let's see, east and west walls. On the north and south walls are clearly digitally printed tapestries based on the same image. As I understand it from having spoken to Marion Goodman about this, Richter did not actually participate. I would say he didn't shut it down either, So, uh, but, uh, he, but uh, apparently one of his studio assistants, made the wallpaper, did the print, and took care of the whole thing. Uh, it, it, the project was originally part of the Manchester Festival a couple of years ago when there were paintings, as I understand it, by Richard. Maybe they were prints too, but they referred to a, a series of work that made reference to concentration camps in Germany, or Birkenau, maybe Auschwitz. This was, uh, they looked like band-aids on the wall and were of almost no visual interest at all. Arvo Part wrote a choral, an acapella choral composition based on those paintings that had been in Manchester and performed here by singers from two different New York City choruses, beautiful voices. So you walked in the gallery and they were there dressed in street clothes so that it wasn't clear when you walked in that they were the performers. And then they started singing and walking around the room. And the acoustics were good, which I can't say is true in the McCourt Hall. The, the acoustics are pretty good, but need a little tweaking. Um, and it was beautiful, but I, they were using the Richter name to sell the piece when there was actually no art involved. That upset me. <laughs> it was kind of false advertising. In the other, then when that piece ended, you walked into the other room where there was there were two prints, uh, more wallpaper extending the length of the long walls of uh, the Richter striped images and a paint a small uh, reproduction uh, I think of a paint a small painting on one wall and on the southern wall was a projection a digital animation of that the same uh, patterns the stripes and the kind of fractal repeating patterns of the wallpaper in the other room, which went on for 80 minutes, uh, slowly changing. And it was like watching a screensaver on a computer at a very large scale. 
in that room uh, was a small kind of chamber orchestra playing, uh, again, a, a beautiful piece of music by Steve Reich, who composed to the rhythm of the animation. So that was a collaborator with the woman who made the so it wasn't a film, it was an animation. So Richter really didn't participate. I guess he gave it his blessing. But the room itself, the gallery, it has a lot of the was true and a lot of the spaces felt not quite finished. And I thought and, and they're so big. Of course you can divide them with walls and but I think there are very few artists who can fill these spaces with a single project. I think when Agnes Deans does her installation, which are huge pieces of land art and, and enormous sculptures, uh, in coming months, that might work better. But in this case, I thought, maybe this is just a performance venue. It's, it's not a gallery, it's not a museum, the shed, I mean. Uh, what is it in terms of visual art? It's a little so-called festivalist, you know, big impressive things that are one-offs. It was, the, the music was great, the visuals were of no consequence at all, so you were left kind of staring at the room, and which is empty, you know, flexible spaces have no character. They're just a, an empty space, and it's up to the art and the people in them to give it some personality, which didn't really happen with this exhibition. It was the same in the other exhibition space, which was given it was a commission for Tricia Donnelly, who's not the easiest or most accessible artist to begin with. Uh, she left the room in another enormous space, all the lights were off, so you walked in, it was kind of dark. I don't know what happens on a cloudy day, the sun happened to be out on Saturday. So there was some daylight coming in, a, a, one opening, a, a door that was left to open, so that daylight was coming in the windows from outside uh, and reflecting off one of the towers, one of the skyscrapers, and which moved with the light uh, over time, but it was just it was one column of light, which wasn't on the sculptures in the room, which you could not exactly stumble over because they were two big redwood, well, redwood and a pine tree from California where Trisha Donnelly is from, uh, laid horizontally on dollies and kind of bandaged by straps. In the far corner was uh, an, a, a, an amalgamation of branches and logs as if they had washed downstream somewhere and were stuck in this corner. Uh, they were almost not visible and not, you couldn't walk into it, you had to stand at a distance. I think that most people, except for hardcore Trisha Donnelly fans, will probably walk in and out completely baffled. Uh, I, for the sake of information, I asked the, uh, there was a, a woman from, from the shed standing in there and I asked her what the reference was and how it related to the room. 
And she said that, I mean, this is not Trisha Donnelly speaking, but somebody who works for the shed said, explained that um, the, there, there's very little of the natural world in Hudson Yards. It's a manufactured experience. Uh, and that she wanted to bring some of the natural world into the building, which is a fine ambition, but it didn't belong there. <laughs> and it looks strange and kind of ominous in the dark, which I think is a good thing, but it, it kind of makes you wonder, what have we done to our city that there's no nature in this enormous 28-acre space. There are a few trees here and there and a couple of flower beds, but pretty much it's all about the built environment, which is really undistinguished by anything but its enormous scale. That's what's good about the shed, and also bad, <laughs> is that it can be open to all ideas. And as one of the architects, the lead architect, Elizabeth Diller, explained to me, it's a work in progress. She says it'll never be finished. And essentially, it's infrastructure for things to come. But it's an odd venue for experimentation, which, by the nature of the beast, has to absorb a certain amount of failure. So all in all, do you feel that the shed will fill a certain niche in New York? This is a question I've been puzzling over myself over the last few days because this is New York City. We have uh, what I mentioned before, the Park Avenue Armory. We have Lincoln Center. We have the Brooklyn Academy of Music. We have any number of theaters, concert halls, recital halls, experimental theaters, experimental nonprofit art spaces, museums that host events very similar to those at the Shed. Does New York City really need the Shed? No, it doesn't. So it has to establish an identity apart from all of these other venues. Hudson Yards needed the Shed in order to get built and to attract tenants because by giving a corner of this property, not even a corner, some amount of this property to a nonprofit cultural space, the developer, Steve Ross from the related companies, got a $6 billion tax break and so made each of these uh, buildings uh, uh, attractive to tenants. Before that, uh, nothing was going on there. It just wasn't happening. So the shed was a kind of a means by which the city could and related could develop the site. So, well, all is said and done, we're stuck with it. Now the shed, its director, Alex Putz, and uh, curatorial advisor, Hans Ulrich Goldberst from the Serpentine Gallery in London, has to give it an identity, but which is right now very nebulous because it's trying to be all these things to all these different people. Well, I think it has to find itself, and I actually have every faith that it will. It's going to take some time for this development to become part of a New York City, which it's trying not to be. It's walled off from the city. The subway, the seven line, comes out there, but otherwise it is a wall to keep its tenants safe from contamination by city streets. 
and the unpredictability of life in New York City. It's all tranquilized. I mean, it's like they all took a pill. The names of the funders are all over the lobby of the ship, as if they owned it, as if they made the art, as if they were responsible for being there. In, in some sense, I suppose that's true. But money doesn't make art. Artists make art. And they're going to make it whether they have money in their pockets or not. It's been that way since the beginning of time. They make it because they have to. And if they don't have a place to show or perform, they make their own spaces. New York City has a history of artist-run and operated spaces. That's where our culture came from. The shed has to be more than a finished product if it's going to succeed. Well, thank you, Linda. <laughs> Thank you, Nancy. Steve McQueen's Soundtrack of America continues at The Shed until the 14th of April. And you can find out about all the events at the centre at theshed.org. And that's it for this week. Do subscribe if you haven't already done so. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please give us a rating or review on iTunes because it helps others to find us. You can follow us on Twitter at Tan Audio and the Art Newspaper is on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook, of course. If you'd like to read more from the Art Newspaper, then why not subscribe to our daily newsletter so that you won't miss out on the latest developments in museums, galleries, heritage sites, auction houses, art fairs and biennials around the world. Visit theartnewspaper.com and click on the newsletter link at the top right of the page. The Art Newspaper podcast is produced by Julia Mahouska, Amy Dawson and David Clack, and David does the editing. Thanks to Nancy and Linda, to Julia and to you for listening. I mentioned Brexit last week and, rather fittingly, I didn't deliver. But next week we will have an interview with a man who arguably has visualised the chaos in British politics better than any other, the satirical artist Cold War Steve. See you then. The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, auctioneers since 1793. To find out more, visit bonhams.com now. <laughs>